I have been reflecting for, for quite some time on, on my ministry as a church pastor. Um, quite a while. One of the things that has kind of brought this reflection about was 30 years ago. 30 years ago, my then wife, not then wife, <laughs> I meant wife and then only child. That's, what I, that's where I was going with that. Ashley was only um, just about a year old. We moved from Owatonna, Minnesota to uh, southeast Michigan. Woodhaven is this, was it's called, just south of Detroit, as we refer to that great metropolitan state uh, city. Um, looking forward to going to seminary. I couldn't wait for seminary. Could not wait. Why? Well, I'm preparing to be a pastor. Uh, I want to get that preparation. Another reason, in college, I had a lot of Bible classes, a lot of theology, but I also had to take math and English and some of those other classes that I didn't want to take, but you have to take in order to graduate. Seminary, it's all Bible and theology and church history and Greek and Hebrew and I couldn't wait. I was just chomping at the bit. To get in, uh, to be able to pay for food and clothes and things like that, I took the first job I could get, pumping gas. Remember when you used to be able to drive up to a gas station and a gas attendant would come out and pump your gas? I got a job doing that. 60 hours a week, minimum wage. Um, <laughs> Honestly, one of the best jobs I ever had. I loved it. I got to talk with people. Um, but I knew that is not going to be a good job for seminary because seminary classes are in the morning and I was working from 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. pumping gas. And I learned a lot about car mechanics and fixing things, uh, some great things. Uh, but I got that job in like April. And so kind of clandestinely, while I'm working for this guy, I'm also looking for another job. Kind of felt a little guilty. But I'm there to go to seminary. I'm there to prepare to become a pastor and to, to preach. Um, April became May, and then June, and then July. Now remember, this is before the internet. When you found jobs in the classified ads, in newspapers. Remember those times? I mean, this is the dark ages. This is last millennia, not just last century. This is a long time ago. I'm trying, I'm getting interviews. I'm trying to get this job in late July, early August. I'm really starting to worry now. Seminary starts in, in, in uh, the last week of August. I'm not getting a job. And we finally got to the point of no return. And I remember distinctly that Sunday when I realized seminary is starting Tuesday. No job prospects. And y'all are waiting for the, the job to fall out of nowhere, aren't you? I didn't get a job then. Seminary started. And what am I doing? pump of gas in August, in September, in October, all the way until the next May. 
I was depressed. Lord, what's going on? I thought you wanted me to preach and be a pastor. I need this training so I can handle your word well, so I can be a good pastor. And I wrote in my Bible, and I read it yesterday, the Bible that I used then, that I'm thankful for how the Lord helped me. The Lord called me at that place in that time uh, to, to prepare for the ministry. And I must not think that that preparation only occurs in a classroom. But in everything that the Lord brings into my life. I look back to that year of pumping gas, and let me tell you, there's nothing like pumping gas when it's minus 20 degrees outside. People like to have their gas pump done. And I actually made some tips. It's kind of nice. During that year, the next April, we had twins, Andy and Megan. Um, during that year, the Lord helped me grow in my faith, grow in a more stubborn uh, dedication to getting this preparation and serving the Lord. And I'm glad he did. The first couple years was Greek. When I finally was able to start was Greek, Bible classes, some ministry classes. And then years, it took me six years to do a three-year seminary course because I was working 50 to 60 hours a week, uh, 40 to 50 hours a week at the factory. Um, years three and four was Hebrew and that was a trial for my soul I'm not just saying that flippantly it was hard and there were several times where I said to Trish I said I just don't know about this here's Trish at that time with four kids at the beginning when we had Hannah it was four kids three and under I'm at school in the morning and then afternoon, I work a two to 10 shift. Poor Trish. Who had it, who had it harder, me or her? Uh, <laughs> she has four little kids. Um, that was hard work. And here I am pouring my heart out to my, my wife. I just don't know if I can do this. She almost literally kicked me in the pants and said, you get back down in your office and you get studying, buddy. We're in this together. I'm glad she did that. I'm glad it finished. Um, but that was, a, that was a, a challenging year. During those years of seminary, I anticipated pastoring, looking forward to it. I'd get home at 10.15 for my shift. From 10.15 to 11 was what we called Trisha time. Often the, the first time in the day when I would get to spend time with Trish alone. And yeah, we'd be like this, uh, trying to stay awake. But it was the first time of the day that we got to spend time together and to talk. And then she'd go to bed and 11 o'clock, I would study till, well, I'd start hearing knocking on the wall, my mind playing tricks on me. Uh, that's when I knew it was time to go to bed. And then I'd get up at four and finish the Hebrew. So I would often get four or five hours of sleep a night. But sometimes just to stay awake, I'd walk around outside in the suburb of Detroit that I lived in at that time, in Lincoln Park, looking up at the stars, if you could kind of see one or two through the streetlights, and Lord, where are you going to have me serve? Looking forward to it. And he's okay. 
We like hearing Jacob, don't we? It's all right. Looking forward to that. And then, here I am. I've pastored for 23 years. Where did the time go? A lot of reflection on my ministry the past few weeks as a church pastor. Um, Some really encouraging fruits. There's also been some, as I reflected on my ministry, some disappointing failures. Um, I've especially been considering the judgment that I have before the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate, if you will, job evaluation. Someday I will stand before the head of the church. I will stand before the chief shepherd and give an account for my ministry. And when you think about that, as I'll draw attention to again at the end of the message, it is a sobering thing. In our area, there are a lot of different philosophies and practices about pastors. What pastors do, what pastors don't do. A lot of that depends on the understanding of Jesus' church. We think this is what the church is. And what the church should be like. And what the church should do. And that affects and directs what pastors do. The Corinthian church here in 1 Corinthians. They had divisions among themselves. The division first happened, the first part, chapter 1 and 2 and the beginning part of chapter 3. Because they had some wrong teaching meshed in with the gospel. They loved philosophy. They loved man's wisdom. And they put that with the gospel. And Paul said, the result of that is division. Here in chapter 3, verse 4, to the end of chapter 4, they had divisions among themselves about church leadership, if you will, pastors. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of so-and-so, you know. The, he's my homeboy. He's the one that I listen to. Don't you dare speak against him. We have some things that we must learn from this. First, let's look at verses 5 through 8. Number one, we must be ultimately loyal to Christ, not his servants. We must be ultimately loyal to Christ, not his servants. Ultimately loyal to Christ, not his servants. Verse 5. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Church ministers are servants. And Paul tells us here five different characteristics about these servants. The first is in verse 5 when he calls them ministers. 
And I don't often do this, but the Greek word is diakonos. Diakonos. Does that sound like pastor? No, that sounds more like deacon, doesn't it? And that is often used and translated as deacon. But just because it's used that way doesn't mean that it always refers to that. Sometimes it's referred to Christ. Christ is called a servant, and they use the word diakonos. Regular every every other believer, ladies, and here, ministers, pastors, they're servants. That is the first characteristic. They're servants, and we must remember that. A second characteristic is in verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered. They are just workers in the garden. They're just garden workers. And I kind of like that because you know my garden abilities, don't you? Zero. They are just workers in the garden. They don't cause the growth in the garden. God giveth the increase. A third characteristic is in verse 7. Neither, so then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God gives the increase. The third characteristic, ultimately, they are nothing. God is everything. Doesn't mean we're worthless. You get the idea. In the grand scheme of things, your ultimate loyalty must be to Christ, not his servants. The Corinthians forgot that. Their loyalty was to the servant. And Paul says, you need to remember, they're just servants. They're just workers in the garden. Ultimately, it's, they're nothing because God is everything. A fourth characteristic, beginning in verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. They're, number four, on the same level. And they're on the same level. All true servants of Christ. They're all on the same level. And this is an important thing to remember with the celebrity pastors that are out there. I love listening to a good speaker, whether it's on the internet or the radio or in person. But boy, do we have a tendency to say, he's a really top-notch pastor. We need to remember whether they water or plant, they are all, what's this fourth characteristic? All on the same level. And so don't take them out. Don't lift them above that level. We're waterers and we're planters. A fourth, a last characteristic, the rest of verse eight. Each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. The fifth characteristic is all, every one of them, are accountable to God. All of them all ultimately are accountable to God. The ultimate reward that they have is not in this life. And this is developed more in verses 12 to 15. So we'll wait for that there and then in my application at the end. But as far as application here, boasting in servants. 
Imagine the silliness. Have you, have you noticed that uh, the, the corn is starting, the leaves are starting to change color and, and the fall is coming and love those change of seasons? doesn't happen down south. All that the south has a lot of green and orange dirt. They have green trees and, and orange dirt. And my kids try to get me to move down there and say, your guys' dirt is the wrong color. There's just something fundamentally wrong about orange dirt. This is not right. It seems dirty. <laughs> I, I look at their, their back door where the kids come in and it's orange on there. Like, this isn't right. I know God made it, but it just doesn't seem right. Um, the corn is starting to tassel. It's, things are getting ready to be harvested. And soon we'll start seeing the harvesting uh, machines out there. Uh, imagine the silliness of boasting in corn, tra- corn trailers and binder twine. That's not the main thing of the harvest, is it? Boy, that's some fine binder twine you're using there, Dave. Best binder twine I've ever seen. He'd look at you like, it's binder twine. It just holds the hay together, or this whatever it might be. If we boasted in the corn trailers or the binder twine, what would the plows say? What about us? If it wasn't for us, this wouldn't have been here. What would the tractors say? You try doing this without, without us. You're doing it with your hands. Imagine the silliness of just focusing on the mirrors of the combine. Combine is a great big thing, and there's a, a lot of different aspects into it. There's blades that rotate, the tank that holds the grain, the pipe that it comes out of, the auger, the conveyors, the belts, the wheels, all these other things. And you're focusing on the mirror? That's silly. It's just a tool. It's a servant. There are different servants. They're doing different tasks, but they are never to be the focus in the Lord's harvest field, are they? Who's supposed to be the focus? The Lord is. The Lord is. When servants become the focus, the Lord isn't. We must ultimately be loyal to Christ, not his servants. Number two, verses 9 to 15. We must build well on Jesus Christ, not poorly. Build well on Jesus Christ, not poorly. We read in verse 9 how God is the one who builds this church. Paul says we are God's fellow workers. And just stop a second. That's quite a statement there. God's fellow workers. You go from just being a menial servant and slave laborer to God's fellow workers. He'll say this later in 2 Corinthians. We, we work with God. We are co-laborers with him. Uh, this opposites goes back and forth so quick and it's just kind of mind-boggling. 
But he says here, you, and that is plural. You, Corinthian church, you are God's field. You are God's building. God builds his church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the church is described as God's house. The church of the living God. God builds his church. In verses 10 and 11, number two, there's only one true foundation of the church, and that is Jesus Christ. Verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Implication there is Jesus Christ in the gospel. Another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's only one true foundation of the church. What is the church? The church is an, assembly, an organized assembly of believers. Believers in whom? In Jesus Christ. We're not just a, a, a group of people who just happen to get together. In this geographic area, what binds us together, the foundation of our unity and fellowship, is Jesus Christ. Those who believe, whose first testimony, public testimony was the immersion in water, died with Christ and raised to newness of life. They became part of that body and they're committed to each other. If Jesus Christ, according to the gospel, is not the foundation of a religious group, it is not a church. Might call itself a church. Might have a sign out front that says it's a church. But if Jesus Christ, according to the gospel, the true gospel, if he is not the foundation, it is not a church. Number three, Jesus will evaluate what building materials have been used. Look at verse 12 again. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Have you ever read this passage and, boy, what's going on here? Kind of sounds like purgatory, doesn't it? Our works are going to get burned off. Is that what's being talked about here? No, it's not at all. What Paul is getting at here is the character of the building it has to develop and match the character of the foundation. The foundation that's laid is Jesus Christ. And what's built on that foundation? The character of the building materials has to be consistent with the foundation. Same character as the foundation, developing 
and growing, if you will, that foundation. The Corinthians built with worldly wisdom. And so pastors have to be careful how they build and what they build with, the building materials, if you will. It might look impressive on the outside. I'm not talking about the wood. I'm talking about the group of people. It might look really impressive, and that's what the Corinthians were after. It might look really impressive on the outside, but it might ultimately be junk. This is talking about, this judgment here is talking about that future judgment seat of Christ. That future judgment seat of Christ. But this particularly here, in this context, this is not talking about every individual Christian's being judged, standing before the judgment seat of Christ. That will happen. You could write down Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10, where we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But this is talking about when church leaders, or pastors, if you will, those building the church, when they will stand before Christ, the head of the church, the great shepherd, and they will give an account. What, Pastor Greenfield, have you built on this foundation here? Have you used gold, silver, and precious stones? In other words, building materials that match the foundation? Or have you built with wood, hay, and stubble? Or junk material? If you put that through a fire, what will that fire do to the gold, the silver, and the precious stones, nothing. What would it do to wood, hay, and stubble? It'll burn it up. It's not talking about literal fire here at the judgment seat of Christ. It's a figure of speech to help us understand that Jesus will be able to pierce through what looks good and see it for its true character, for what it really is. And that is frightening as a pastor. And that is sobering. Then I'll make application about it in a little bit. Number three, last, verses 16 and 17. We must honor Christ's church, not destroy it. We must honor Christ's church, not destroy it. The church, number one, is God's dwelling place, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And again, the you is plural. You, Corinthian church, you are the temple of God. And so we can apply this here right now. Do you not know, Oral Bible Church, you are the temple of God. And that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God dwells in you. This is not talking about the individual Christian's body. That's 1 Corinthians 6.19. And that is true. But in this context, it's talking about the church. The church here is where God dwells. In this day and age, this local church, in this area, this is where God dwells. That is an amazing thought to think about. Think about all the different organizations that are around. We have different levels of government. 
Those are not called God's dwelling place. We have schools. Those are not called God's dwelling place. There's hospitals and charitable organizations that do good for physical needs. Those are not called God's temple or dwelling place. Think of this. The family is not called God's temple. Our bodies are as believers because the spirit dwells us. It is his church that is called his temple. The church is special to God. It must be special to you. It must be special to his servants, pastors, if you will. This is not some mere human organization. We'll look at this a little bit more this afternoon. This was bought with Jesus' blood. We must view the church as God views it and act accordingly. A second characteristic is in verse 17. It is holy. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. I'll hit the first sentence later on. Here I'm focusing on that second sentence. The temple of God is holy, which temple you, Corinthian church, are, plural. The character of the church is the same as its builder and maker. What did Peter say? You must be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Absolute purity. And so the danger of sin, the danger of false teaching, the danger of that all continuing in a church body unstopped is contrary to the nature, the character that God intends for his church to be. It's especially bad, and Paul will get to this in chapter 5, when that kind of sin is approved and encouraged and promoted. We must view the church as God views it and act accordingly. Some points of application, and these... I admit, are primarily directed to me. The first point of application is the expectation of a definite accounting. I, Dan Greenfield, I am going to someday stand before the one who died for this church. And I will be explaining why I did what I did. Do you ever like to be called on the carpet? It's kind of a, uh-oh, what I do? Sometimes that happens when I might make a phone call and call one of you kind of out of the blue. Hey, how's it going, Joe? Uh, good, Pastor, what I do? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're on that level. <laughs> but sometimes you can kind of feel that way, don't you? Nothing, I just wanted to call. Here in... 
I'll either address this later in this message, I can't remember, or this afternoon. Who will I be standing before? The owner of this church. The one who died and bought this church. I'm going to give an answer for everything I did, good and bad. A second point of application is the necessity of proper building materials. The necessity of proper building materials. And again, I'll develop this more this afternoon. But what are the building materials that God has given to build on that foundation so that Christ's church is not destroyed but built? There's his word, his truth. There is prayer. There is Christ-like living. There is faithful, obedient ministry. And that is something that has been both convicting and challenging since I've been a pastor, but also remarkably comforting. You don't need not just a ton of money. You don't need any money to do the Lord's work. You don't need flashy buildings. You don't need any of that. Which the Corinthians looked to. They said, you got to have that. And do we hear that today? You got to have this wow and this pizzazz and this fun and all that kind of stuff. What did the Lord say? Builds his church. It's his truth. It's his people praying. It's his people living godly Christian lives. And just faithful, obedient ministry. Remember what the, the, the pastors of the Jerusalem church said when they were just being swamped with all kinds of different details? They said, we will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. A third point of application. It's a bit long. So the one word that you could put down is just simply discipleship. But that's such a buzzword today, discipleship. And one of the things I, I don't like about the, the buzzword aspect is it makes it sound like discipleship is something that you do one-on-one. -on -one. You're going through a, a planned, programmed Bible study. And I do that. And I enjoy that. That's teaching. But discipleship is not just those times. Discipleship happens every time the church gathers and we sing and we read scripture and we fellowship and we eat at the table and we have the Lord's Supper and we're giving. All those things aim at your being built up. And so the point here is building the church involves teaching Christians to live thoroughly Christ-like lives. Building the church involves teaching Christians to live thoroughly Christ-like lives. I will give an account someday for my ministry. I have to be careful that I use right building materials. The right building materials are God's truth and prayer and so on. And the aim, how I, the, the, my ministry then is building the church by teaching Christians to live thoroughly Christ-like lives. So who does this involve? We have three entire books in the New Testament for pastors. First and second, Timothy and Titus. Who's, who's involved? Singles and married people. Parents 
and children, men and women, the old and the young. Did I miss anybody? Grandparents are not raising their hand. You miss me. You're a parent. You're grandparents. Everyone's involved. Everyone's involved. Every type of employment. I am to teach you how to live a Christ-like life in your type of employment. Every life situation, enslaved or free. I am to teach basic Christian characteristics. This is what a, a Christian needs to grasp. Basic Christian disciplines, if you will. Read your Bible, pray, meditate, uh, witness, be regular in church, giving, all those different things. Your responses that you should have as a Christian, your attitude that you should have as a Christian. All these things are the pastor's work and responsibility. And I don't know about you, do we have a big church or a small church? How would you describe it? I describe it as smallish. I feel overwhelmed already. I'm responsible for every one of you. I'm going to give an account for every one of you. I'm overwhelmed. But the Lord is sufficient, isn't he? Who is sufficient for this work, Paul says? God is sufficient. He gives us sufficiency. Two more points of application. Verses 12 to 15, the wood, hay, and stubble and all that. The real test, the real test is not people's praise and opinion, but Jesus Christ's assessment. The real test, the real proof, the real evidence, the real goal is not people's praise and opinion, but Jesus Christ's assessment. And that is a hard thing. When you have to sit across somebody and tell them that they are in sin and they need to repent or the direction you're going is dangerous or this isn't a very wise decision. Are you thinking through it? People don't like to be told that, do they? And so what runs through your mind? They could leave. They might. Or when I preach through a passage and I know I've got this passage coming up and I know this is going to be a problem for that person. I hope they're not there this Sunday. It's kind of the opposite of, I hope they're there this Sunday. <laughs> you know, a pastor could devote his entire life and ministry to working in the church, and it's all a waste. Do you remember the, the burning part here? The wood, hay, and the stubble, and it, it gets uh, burned up. Imagine your life's work literally almost all going up in smoke. That is sobering to think about. Two passages to write down that we'll look again at again later this afternoon. First, Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17. There the author, author of Hebrews says to the readers, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. 
Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. A second passage, 1 Peter 5, 3. 1 Peter 5, 3. There, Peter says, uh, he gives admonition about how to shepherd on, uh, the flock. And then he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive. You will receive. So what matters is not what people think, but what matters is Christ's assessment. The last point of application is the very beginning of verse 17. These are solemn words. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. I don't know why the New King James translated it this way. The Greek word for destroy is the exact same word as defile. The sense is if anyone destroys God's church, God will destroy him. That is a sobering thought. That is a sobering thought. God, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present, he will judge. And I, I believe what's being talked about here is eternal destruction. So this is a false teacher in particular. He will judge with eternal destruction the one who destroys his church where he dwells. That should reflect his holiness. I titled today's message, The Judgment That Pastors Face. And I asked myself three questions. How do I view myself? Verses 5 to 8. How am I building? Verses 10 to 15. And how do I view Christ's church? Verses 16 to 17. You could apply these things to yourself. How do you view yourself in the church body? How do you view the pastors that the Lord gives? How are you building? We are all the ministers in one sense of Oral Bible Church. How are you building? What are you building with? What kind of building materials? And verses 16 to 17, how do you view Jesus' church? Do you view it as that special place of his dwelling and his holy? Let's pray.